When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 175, In the Hall of the Duat King. This is the Ancient Egyptian Book of Gates, part one. Today, we are going past the western horizon, the land of sunset. We are heading into the dead lands, to confront the souls who live within the afterlife. It is a journey that will take us through many curious places, and we will witness great and mysterious events. This episode is brought to you by Jean Lam, or Jean Lam, Adrian Moore, Lauren Close, and Kathleen Tway. These fine folks from such diverse lands as California, New York, and Florida made donations to the podcast, for which I am most grateful. Folks, you have given offerings in a generous manner. Surely you will receive rewards from the great deities of the Duat. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. Come, let us journey to the underworld. Around 1305 BCE, approximately, an Egyptian pharaoh went to his grave. His name was Hor-em-Heb, Horus in festival and he was a significant ruler in the political history of the time. Religiously, Horemheb's tomb is quite interesting. On the walls of this monument, we find a new underworld text. This is the Book of Gates. The Book of Gates is a text dealing with the lands beyond life. It is similar to famous works like the Book of the Dead or the Amduat. The Book of Gates is concerned with the Duat, This is the Egyptian name for the netherworld, the afterlife, whatever you want to call it. The Duat is a vast land with its own geography and divisions. It exists somewhere outside our world, but connected to it, and what happens in the Duat affects life on Earth. The Duat is home to many beings, including the souls of the dead, monsters and demons who threaten those souls, powerful deities, and of course, the greatest of great gods. On this journey, there will be many strange and wondrous sights. Where did the Book of Gates come from? That's actually unclear. It might have its origins in temple texts, the books that priests would use in their rituals, prayers, and worship. But that is speculative, just a hypothesis. The Book of Gates so far, only survives on the walls of tombs. We don't have any examples from it from the living world, like the temples. To date, the first known version of the Book of Gates appears in Horemheb's royal tomb, tomb number 57 in the Valley of the Kings. Does that mean that Horemheb wrote this text, or created it? Not necessarily. 
but his monument is the first one to show it that we know about. Following this ruler, many pharaohs, including famous kings like Seti I and Ramesses II, would also use the Book of Gates in their own tombs. But its first showing is here, around 1305 BCE. The Book of Gates appears on the wall of a tomb. It is shown in the classic style of ancient Egyptian art. Each scene is divided into three horizontal registers. These registers, one above the other, are stacked together, and each of these forms a distinctive unit. There are 12 of those units, representing the 12 hours of the night. Plus, there are two additional units that form little interludes and epilogues. More on that later. Visually, the Book of Gates gives a sense of the underworld. Throughout this book, images and hieroglyphs convey pictures and scenes from the land of the dead. We see its geography, its important locations, and the beings or gods who live within the land. In that sense, the Book of Gates is very similar to the Amduat, aka the Book of the Hidden Chamber. The Book of Gates and the Amduat overlap in many respects, but they have important differences. Long story short, the Book of Gates describes the underworld, the Duat, and it shows the journey that Ra, the sun god, must take through that land. Ra is our protagonist. He embarks on a quest through the Duat. His journey is dangerous, and there are many threats along the way. But Ra is not alone, and he will meet deities who protect him from danger. The journey takes 12 hours, and at the end of each hour, Ra comes to a barrier, a gate guarded by deities and serpents. Those gates must be opened before Ra can pass. These gates divide the book into its chapters, or hours, and as you can imagine, they give the Book of Gates its name. Technically, we don't know the ancient name of this book. There is one possible name that I'll get to later, but whereas other books like the Book of the Dead have their own proper titles, the Book of Gates is far more discreet. We don't actually know what it was called. Thematically, the Book of Gates is concerned with several things. Probably the most important one, though, is the relationship between the world of the living and the world of the dead. We'll see throughout the text moments and instances where the great gods reward those who did well in life and punish those who did wrong. There is a strong emphasis on your obligations towards those who have died and to the great gods. If you give offerings and live properly in life, you will enjoy the rewards in the Duat. That is probably the key theme. We'll cover a couple more as we progress, but that is the main focus. I'm not covering the entire Book of Gates today. The text is way too long, and it's such an interesting journey that I want to give it proper detail. So in the grand tradition of adapting books to other media, we are splitting it in two. This is part one. A quick explanation of my sources. For English speakers, there are two big translations of the Book of Gates. The first one comes from Dr. Eric Hornung, one of the most influential Egyptologists on religion and literature. 
In 2014, his book, The Egyptian Book of Gates, was made available in English. There is also a work by Drs. John Darnell and Colleen Manasseh Darnell. This book is titled The Ancient Egyptian Netherworld Books. That was published in 2018, and it provides an overview and translations of all the major underworld texts. If you are interested in reading the Book of Gates, those are the two sources I recommend. For this episode, I am primarily using Hornung's translation, with some bits from Darnell. I have also made small edits and tweaks to the text to make it more accessible or understandable to a non-academic audience. Nothing major, just the occasional word or phrase that needed reworking. Overall, the meaning should be the same. Of course, any mistakes are entirely mine. Finally, a note on the music. The interludes you hear are special compositions for this episode by Luke Chaos, who does much of the bespoke music for this podcast. The songs themselves are covers from a wonderful album released in the early 2000s. That album chronicles a journey through the night, with many twists and turns on the way. If you can guess the album that this music comes from, let me know. I'll give a shout out to those who are correct, and reveal the answer in the next episode. Now then, enough introduction. Let us turn towards the western horizon. It is time to embark on a nighttime journey. Our story begins on the threshold. In the first hour, we do not enter the Duat straight away. Instead, the sun god approaches the entrance to the Duat. The entrance is located somewhere in the western desert. When Ra arrives at this gate, he is greeted by the gods of the desert, the Necheru Zemit. Ra himself appears in his solar bark, the great boat or barge which he will use to sail through the underworld. In the artistic imagery, Ra appears as a beetle. This beetle is also a hieroglyph, the hieroglyph Cheper. Cheper, or Kepri, can mean manifestation or even to appear. In other words, Ra appears in his morning form. The imagery conveys his form at the dawn. Basically, it predicts his successful journey through the underworld. Ra is not alone in his solar bark. He is accompanied by two deities. A figure stands to either side of the beetle. One of them is called Heka, meaning magic, and one of them is called Sia, meaning divine perception. It's not clear if these are literally two gods, or if they are simply personifications of a concept. Magic and perception are tools that Ra and the deceased will need to progress through the underworld. Perhaps the imagery is simply telling us, to cross the Duat, you need these attributes and skills. Either way, Heka and Sia appear on either side of the sun god in almost every image. Ra approaches the entrance to the Duat, and he is greeted by the gods who wait outside within the desert. Now, he comes to the first gate. Gate number one appears as a doorway. It is tall, with a serpent between the doorposts. This depiction is quite simple compared to what comes later. Perhaps because this first gate is the entrance to the Duat, 
You don't want something too ostentatious for a mysterious land. The gate, or maybe the serpent who guards it, is called the one who guards the desert, and upon the gate, hieroglyphs recite a text. It says, He, the serpent, is upon this door. The serpent will open this door for Ra. Sia, divine perception, says to that serpent, Open your gate for Ra. Open your door for he of the two horizons. Behind the gate, the hidden chamber, or the tomb, is in darkness, until the forms of this god appear. Behind the gate, the hidden chamber, the tomb, or the underworld, is in darkness, and it will remain that way until the forms of Ra appear. The gods speak to the serpent, the serpent opens the gate, and after Ra enters, the door closes behind him. Those who are left in the desert cry out when they hear that gate closing. Ra passes the first gate. Now, he enters the Duat itself. Ra comes into the underworld, and immediately he is greeted by twelve figures. These figures are collectively called the Doers of Ma'at. They are the people who, on earth, acted properly, gave offerings to the god and to the deceased. As a result of their piety and good action, they become part of the blessed within the underworld. Now, Ra does not appear as a beetle, he appears in his more classic form. He appears as a human male, but with a ram's head. This is the form of Ra that exists during the night time. The name of this form is Uf Ra, or the flesh of Ra. He sits within a shrine upon his bark, and around that shrine, a long serpent coils. This serpent is called the Encircling One, or Mehen. Once again, Ra is accompanied in his bark by Heka, magic, and Sia, perception. Ahead of the bark, there is also a crew of four human males. These are called the Duat Dwellers, or Duatiu. They clutch a rope, and they pull the bark of Ra through this hour. As Ra is greeted by the blessed dead, the people who acted properly on earth, he speaks to these gods. He says, Behold, I have tied on the fillet, or headband, and I have taken possession of the shrine which is in the earth. Sia, perception, and Heka, magic, have joined me to manage your affairs, to assign you your duties. One will not remove breath or life from you. The wrongdoers will not enter the duat after you. Your offerings are yours. Ra acknowledges those who acted well in life. He protects their breath, confirms their offerings, and his two assistants, Heka and Sia, will give each soul a place and a role in the Duat. Having entered the land of the dead, Ra immediately begins acting as a ruler. He protects the obedient, fulfills their basic needs, and he establishes the proper order of things. Like the pharaoh on earth, Ra organizes society for the dead. Moving past the do-gooders, Ra now comes to their opposite. A line of figures bent over, with their hands tied behind their back, stand before the sun god. 
These figures are the wrongdoers, those who acted improperly, who did not follow the path of ma'at during life. These figures are bound and bent, and they are guarded by a deity who holds a staff or a spear. The description is evocative. It says, These are the desert dwellers in the Hall of Ra. They are the ones who have complained on earth, those who have spoken wrongly against Ra. They are the oppressors who have offended the two horizons. The deity guarding them, wielding a staff or a spear, punishes the wrongdoers, and that god calls out to them, taunting and lording it over the damned. The guardian deity sneers, My father Ra is justified against you. I am justified against you. You wretches are bound, tied up with firm ropes, and I have ordered that you be bound. Your arms will not be opened. The magic of Ra is against you. My father Ra is powerful against you, but your evil is yours. Your slaughtering is against you. Your punishment is upon you. You are summoned to wrongdoing. The Guardian rages against Ra's enemies. Notably, he describes the punishments in the same terminology as the rewards for the do-gooders. For the blessed dead, the gods promised, your offerings are yours. But for the wrongdoers, the gods promised, your evil is yours. The two groups were opposites in life. They receive opposite treatment in death. Having organised the souls into the good and the bad, Ra now comes to the second gate. At this point, the gates become more elaborate visually. This gate appears as a tall rectangle, divided into two smaller rectangles, perhaps representing the inner and outer faces. On the structure, hieroglyphs present the name of this gate. Gate number two is called She with a Piercing Fire. The gate is decorated with symbols, and at the top, two cobras rear their hooded heads. These serpents share a name. They are She Who Lights Up for Ra. Beside the gate, two mummies appear. They are guardian deities who watch the doorway and prevent unauthorized passage. The names of these mummies are The One Who Devours the Non-Existing and The One Who Swallows Blood, which are, well, that's pretty metal. The guardian figures, cobras and mummies, bow before Ra. The serpents open the gates, and Ra passes the threshold. As he crosses, the doors swing shut behind him, and those left behind are miserable. Quote, Reaching this doorway by the great god, he, Ra, illuminates the total darkness, and he casts light into the hidden chamber, the tomb. The door seals after this great god enters. Those who are outside cry, when they hear this gateway shut. Ra passes the second gate and enters the third hour. Ra passes twelve shrines. Inside each shrine, a mummy appears. The mummies are painted black to represent the decay of death, and they are called the protected gods who are in the Duat, or underworld. Above the shrines, a great serpent named the Fiery One protects the buildings and the mummies who lie within. Ra speaks to the mummies and says, 
open your shrines so that my light may enter your darkness. I found you when you were mourning and your shrines were closed, but now I give breath to your noses and I have assigned you your blessed state. In short, Ra awakens the dead, restoring them to life after their shrines or tombs were sealed. In the darkness of the underworld, the recently deceased gain new life thanks to the shining benevolence of Ra. All who enter the Duat and have acted well upon earth, enjoy life and light from the greatest of the gods. Next, Ra's boat sails over a lake. This is the Lake of Fire, Shei-Chebet. In this lake, twelve more beings appear. Again, they're shaped like mummies, but they have plants growing between them. These beings are called the gods who are in the Lake of Fire. And once again, Ra gives them life, offerings, and all good things. They receive bread, beer, and water from the great god. So, while the lake is fiery, those within are unharmed, even protected. And life emerges from the waters. Curious. Finally, Ra approaches a most important group. This time, the sun god's bark comes before a group of deities. There are nine of them, plus one more at the front. The being at the front, holding a spear, is named Atum, the one who is complete. The nine figures are a divine council. This scene is important because Atum and the council are gathering before a snake. A long serpent, its coils winding back and forth in a zigzag, stands between Atum and the council. That serpent is none other than Apep, Apophis, the great devourer, the enemy of Ra, and all creation. Apophis threatens the sun god and his followers. So Atum and the divine council come to subdue him. The nine gods who do this are called the council that drives away Apophis, Jajat Kesfet Apep. And hieroglyphs in the scene describe what is happening. The glyphs say, quote, That which Atum has done on behalf of Ra, he praises Ra and he overthrows the rebel, Apophis. Atum himself speaks to Apophis, and he says, You, Apophis, are upside down so that you cannot rise. You are enchanted so that you cannot find yourself. My father, Ra, is justified against you. I am justified against you. I have driven you away on behalf of Ra. I have punished you on behalf of the two horizons. End quote. So Atum and the Divine Council gather to subjugate Apophis, the great enemy. Naturally, they are victorious, for they work on behalf of Ra. They drive Apophis to the ground, so that he can never rise. And as they do, Ra's boat sails by in safety. Apophis will not threaten the sun god, or creation, in this hour of the night. Ra continues, safe from Apophis. Soon, he reaches the end of hour three, and comes to its gate. The third gate is called Ruling Lady of Nourishment, Nebet Sejefau. Again, she is guarded by serpents, called She Who Lights Up for Ra. Two mummy guardians appear, as with the previous gate. These guards are named Earthquake, which is one hell of a title. 
The guardians bow as Ra approaches. The gate opens. Ra passes through. And those left behind cry out, wailing, as the doors seal shut. The solar boat now enters the fourth hour. I won't spend too long here, but there is one aspect I want to talk about. In this hour, the text deals heavily with time, the concept of duration, eternity, everlastingness. At the beginning of this hour, various gods come forth to praise Ra, and they specifically emphasize his power over time. The gods say, quote, Hail to you, Ra of the Two Horizons, the permanent one, or one without end, the master of years, the one who is duration, time that cannot be ended. End quote. In other words, the gods call out to Ra, explicitly identifying him as the infinite, imperishable lord. This is important. You see, in hour four, time itself is undergoing a process of rebirth. Ra continues sailing, but soon he reaches a pit. A great hole or expanse opens up in the underworld. Within this pit lies a snake, a coiled serpent. The snake is a goddess. Her name is the Removing One. She who gives birth to twelve serpents, which she destroys, and which she swallows afterwards. What does that mean? Well, the answer appears next to her. On either side of this pit and the serpent, twelve goddesses appear. The women stand in two groups of six, with names next to each other. These goddesses are the hours, the twelve hours of night. The snake is their mother. Apparently, The fourth hour of the Duat is one of the places where time itself is renewed and reborn. The serpent within her pit devours each hour of the night. She eats one of the goddesses. But in turn, the serpent gives birth to those goddesses, those hours, every night. Thus, time is constantly renewing. Within the Duat, the very essence of night and its hours renews and reforms. The Egyptians recognized time as a measurable thing, part of the universe, and thus part of creation, the work of the gods. They also believed that time was infinite and cyclical. Time renewed constantly, whether it was the renewal of the day every 24 hours, the renewal of the season every 120 days, or the renewal of the year every three seasons, they understood time as an endless but ever-repeating concept. This is why the serpent is called the removing one, because as each hour passes, she consumes it. But she is also the one who gives birth to those hours again. The cycle, apparently, is always happening in the depths of the Duat. Ra carries on passing more features of the underworld. I wish I could stop and describe them all, but there is simply too much going on. Too many references to obscure deities and phenomena. Stuff that is interesting, but would only confuse the journey. 
So let's move on. Inevitably, Ra, upon his solar bark, arrives at the next gate. Gate number four is called She Who Does Her Duty. This name is actually a pun. Although it translates in English as She Who Does Her Duty, that entire concept is summarized within one word, irit. The pun here is that the verb iri means to do, and irit is the noun duty or responsibility. So calling the gate irit, the authors capture a full sentence and two distinct concepts in one word. The scribe must have been pleased with themselves. Anyway, more serpents appear guarding the gate. They are named She Who Lights Up for Ra. There are more guardian mummies, named The Devourer and The One Who Draws Near, which sounds ominous. But Ra and his comrades are unperturbed. They command the gates to open, and the guardians oblige. The solar barge sails on, and as the great doors close behind it, those left behind cry and wail. The night progresses. The hour passes once more. We are now four hours in, out of a 12-hour journey. Don't worry, we will have plenty of rest stops along the way, but it is time for a quick break. The next couple of chapters are really significant, so it's probably worth pausing, catching our breath, and getting ready. When we return, the sun god's journey reaches its first major climax. There is great danger, as enemies come forth to threaten Ra. And the sun god must visit the heart of the underworld, and enter the judgment hall of Osiris. That is after the break. See you in a moment. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The Book of Gates continues into hour number five. The sun god Ra, upon his divine boat, have passed four of the gates which make up the netherworld. Now, as they approach the halfway mark of their journey, the symbolism really picks up steam. Over the next couple of hours, Ra will come to the most important events. He will come face to face with the King of the Dead. Ra is now entering the Halls of Osiris. First, he must pass the fifth hour and its guardians. The fifth hour is surprisingly famous among Egyptologists. In hour five, we find the gods 
organising the world. The world of the dead and the world of the living. Most notably, we find images of the four peoples, quote-unquote. Sixteen men, divided into four groups, represent the ancient Egyptian divisions of humanity. There are Egyptians, Southerners, Westerners, and Northerners. The groups appear in stereotypical forms, with distinctive outfits, skin and hair colour, and facial features. Above each of these groups, the hieroglyphs identify them. The Egyptians are called Remech, or simply people. The Southerners are called Nehesiu, or Nubians. The Westerners are called Chemehu, or Libyans. And the Northerners are called Amu, or Syrians. The ancient scribes have divided humanity into four broad groups. Egyptians at the centre, Westerners in the west, Southerners in the south, and Northerners in the north and east. As always, bear in mind that these translations, like Libyans and Syrians, do not correspond exactly with the modern nation-states and their borders. The Egyptians are using them in a more vague or loose sense, the people who live in that direction and who are different from us, but they don't line up one-to-one with modern political boundaries. It's always important to remember that when dealing with any ancient text. Anyway, the four groups, the four peoples, stand before a deity, a falcon-headed god who leans on a staff. This god is Horus, lord of the sky, ruler of humanity. And as the ruler of humanity, Horus oversees the groups, and he blesses these people with life. Quote, Horus speaks to the cattle of Ra, aka humanity. He says, Effectiveness be to you, cattle of Ra, you who came forth from the Great One who is in the sky. Breath to your noses, Egyptians, for you are the tears of my shining eye. Great is the water of the Creator for you, Syrians. And Nubians, you are the one whom I struck, but I am content with the millions who come forth from me. As for the Libyans, I have sought my eye, and so you have come into being. End quote. That was a bit strange, but the gist of it goes like this. Humanity is divided or organised according to the god's will. Each one of them have their various mythological attributes, and Horus acknowledges those as he gives them different forms of his blessing. It gets into the Egyptian concept of the earthly world and how people are organised within the natural system, but that's a topic for another day. So let's move on. Humanity is divided and organised. Ra passes over them and, presumably, approves of the system. Soon, he comes to gate number five. The fifth gate is named the Ruling Lady of Lifetime, Nebet Achau. It has the usual guardians, great serpents named She Who Lights Up for Ra, and mummies named He with the True Heart and He with the Mysterious Heart. The mummies and the serpents bow as Ra approaches. The gate opens, Ra sails through, and as the doors close behind him, those left behind cry out in anguish. It is now time for the Hall of Osiris.
Passing the fifth gate, the sun god now pauses for a moment, a brief interlude. This next chapter takes place slightly out of time. It is not the sixth hour yet, but it's not the fifth anymore either. This interlude exists somewhere between the two. Ra has entered the Judgment Hall of Osiris. In the royal tomb of Horemheb, where the Book of Gates first appears, the Judgment Hall of Osiris gets an entire wall to itself. Within the burial chamber, just above the king's sarcophagus, this tableau plays out. Clearly, it is vitally important. It occupies a large space, and it is not combined with any other hour. This, arguably, is the heart of the Book of Gates. The image is surprisingly simple. At the centre of the scene, a large podium rises. It has steps like a staircase, or a step pyramid. Atop this platform, Osiris sits upon his throne. He is wrapped in the white shroud of mummification. His skin is blue, or green, or black, depending on the version. In his hands, he holds royal scepters, the crook, the flail, or the ankh. And on his head, Osiris wears the double crown, the red and white, emblems of the ruler of all Egypt. Before Osiris, a pair of scales stand ready. These scales are a separate deity, a god whose job is to weigh and measure the conduct and words of the deceased. The job is important. Above the scales, we get a description of his work. Quote, The one who causes the distribution of offerings and the appropriate portions to the blessed dead. The one who weighs the deeds with the scales, so that the wrongdoers and the damned cease to exist. The one who judges and protects the eye. End quote. The god of the scales does three things. He measures the offerings to ensure all of the good people get their proper share. He weighs the actions of the dead to find the liars and the cheats. Those people, he simply de-exists. Finally, the god of the scales passes judgments. The message is simple. Here, in Osiris's judgment hall, there is no hiding the truth. You will be assessed, and any threats will be removed, completely. The god of the scales does not mess around. You may have seen images of these scales in other texts, like the Book of the Dead. In those images, the scales often have Anubis or Thoth dealing with the weighing. Here, there are no intermediaries. The god of the scales does the job by himself, on his own merits. Osiris, seated on his throne, watches the proceedings. But in this hall, the dead come directly before the great god. Other deities appear within the scene. Most notably, we see a monkey and a pig. These two animals appear. The monkey is chasing the pig, who flees the scene, attempting to escape. This image may seem comical, but it has an important religious message. The monkey is a god, the god Jehuti, or Thoth. He acts as a guardian, protecting Osiris and the dead, and he chases away the pig. And who is the pig? Well, that is none other than the great god Seth. Hey, hey, people. Seth appears as a pig named the Swallower, Amu. 
There is a complicated bit of mythology going on here, related to Seth as a chaotic agent and a threat to the dead. I won't get into the details, but long story short, Seth frequently enters these texts as an antagonist. The god, or at least his avatar, is one of the many barriers to a happy, orderly underworld. Of course, there are many dangers in the underworld, but Seth is a big one. And of course, Seth was responsible for murdering Osiris, leading the King of the Dead to come to the underworld in the first place. As a result, well, it's only natural that he appears here as a major threat to Osiris. But the artists did not want to draw Seth fully, so they replaced the god with a pig. In the depths of the underworld, the swine with the cloven hooves was a threat and a menace. Many religions have a similar idea about these animals. Whenever the pig appears, it is fleeing. A monkey god protecting Osiris chases the swallower away. In some texts, the monkey even forces the pig to spit up anything it has swallowed. Here, the message is laid bare. Quote, The ones who are monkeys exalt you, Ra. When this pig appears, the monkey causes it to spit up that which it has swallowed. The words of the dead are praised as the monkey renders judgment. He is Thoth. End quote. So Thoth, Jehuti, appears in his primate form. He drives away Seth and protects the halls of Osiris. In the heart of the Duat, justice and its guardians are hard at work. Seth is not the only important figure in this scene. The rest of the images include various secondary gods. Some of them are friendly, like the god of the scales, who weighs the words and punishes wrongdoers. But there are also enemies, the enemies of Osiris, Hephetiu Usir. These come forth just so that Osiris can crush them beneath his feet. Osiris, quote, orders his enemies to the place of destruction, and he slaughters them. Again, the scene has a very simple message. Osiris, the king of the dead, is victorious. His enemies, wrongdoers, falsehood, chaos, fall away, unable to contain this great god. Osiris is the one who overcame his own death and achieved a second life, an eternal life. Having done so, Osiris offers hope to those who live on earth. And most importantly, he provides the final link in the great circle of life. Things are born, things grow, things die. And that may seem to be an end. But because of Osiris' resurrection and his resulting power, there is a new stage. Life is born, it grows, it dies, and it is born again. The natural world exists in a constantly renewing cycle. Osiris establishes and maintains this principle. Chaos is a constant threat that may swallow up life and destroy its rhythm. But life cannot be contained. Life breaks forth, emerging from the earth, to renew at the dawn. Honouring the great deity, the dead come before Osiris. They ascend the staircase on his podium. Before them, the scales wait to pass judgment, and here the hieroglyphs give the core message. Quote, the blessed dead, the Ark spirits, are in the west. 
When Ra has rested himself in the Duat, or underworld, he opens up the darkness. Ra is rejuvenated in life. The great god goes to rest within his sun disk, or Aten, and he shines forth from his eye. End quote. The dead souls come before Osiris, but the text describes Ra coming to rest within the underworld. In the hall of Osiris, the sun god pauses momentarily to catch his breath. Something interesting is happening here. We get a sense that Ra can become tired, that his power may diminish. The god must rest periodically to strengthen and renew his form. Looking at this literally on a surface level, there is a sense of explanation. This hour when Ra must rest may be the ancient's way of understanding what happened at night. At the end of each day, the sun appeared to diminish or dwindle. As it dipped below the horizon, the disk might have seemed to go out. But obviously the sun did not die. It reappeared in the east at each new day. So where did it go in those hours of darkness? What happened to it? And how did it return full of new energy in the morning? So at the most basic level, there is a sense of explanation for a natural phenomenon. Going into the more metaphorical side of things, we can see a parallel between Ra's journey and that of a living being. As the light dwindled at the end of each day, darkness closed in around the world. And the living, humans, animals, and plants, responded to that change physically. Organisms became tired, closing their petals and buds, or descending into sleep. They lay, vulnerable, for many hours through the darkness. And yet, when the dawn came, life seemed to surge back into activity. People awoke refreshed, animals bounded forth, and even the flowers bloomed as the sunlight crested the horizon. In that sense, you can see Ra's rest as a parallel for the rest of the living. Halfway through the night, when the earthly world seemed at its quietest, that was Ra's time to recharge. And hopefully, he awoke feeling refreshed, or at least ready for coffee. Stepping outside of the narrative just for a moment, there are two things worth noting about the Judgment Hall of Osiris. Firstly, the ancient scribes and artists decorated this scene in a curious way. Writing the hieroglyphs, the authors did not use the standard symbols or phrasing. Instead, they used a kind of writing that scholars call cryptography. What is that? Well, basically, the ancient scribes did not use the normal hieroglyphs to write this scene. They substituted other glyphs that looked similar visually or sounded similar phonetically. Basically, they used a code to hide the text. Why did they do that? Well, the Judgment Hall of Osiris is, arguably, the most important scene in the Book of Gates. A lot happens here that affects the world of the dead and the world of the living. The hieroglyphs that describe these events have their own magic. To read them, speak them aloud, is to bring that power forth. You don't want that kind of magic falling into the wrong hands. So the ancients swapped out the hieroglyphs for similar versions to obscure the text. 
Doing that, they ensured security. The only ones who could read these passages were those who already possessed the knowledge. Only people who had earned that knowledge in life could translate the glyphs and use this magic in the underworld. Of course, a pharaoh always had access to that information. So in a royal burial chamber, the cryptographic or code texts were no barriers to the king's immortality. But it was good to have the security. The second interesting feature is a title. The Book of Gates overall does not have an official title or name, at least not one that has survived. We call it the Book of Gates because of the gates that appear throughout, but the book itself never says what the actual title is. That is different from other underworld texts, like the Book of the Dead, aka the Book of Coming Forth by Day, or the Amduat, aka the Book of the Hidden Chamber. The Book of Gates is far more secretive than those ones. It never tells us its name. Then again, maybe it does. In the Judgment Hall of Osiris, we do get one caption, a short text that maybe indicates the name. In this scene, a line of hieroglyphs read, Mejat net nej user m duatiu. This translates to the book of protecting Osiris among those of the duat. That's an interesting title. Does it refer to the entire book of gates or just the judgment hall of Osiris? That is hard to tell. This title does not appear anywhere else in the text, just the Osiris hall. So the title might be something close to a chapter title rather than the entire book. Or maybe this hall and this scene are a distinct thing, a book within a book. It's hard to say. Since the title does not appear anywhere else, that seems to indicate this is a special chapter. The Hall of Osiris, the scene of judgment, is an important place, arguably the most important place in the entire text. So perhaps the ancients felt this chapter deserved its own title, distinct from the larger Book of Gates. Either way, it's an intriguing caption. Ra comes into the Hall of Osiris, and he witnesses the King of the Dead triumphing over his enemies. The god Thoth chases away the pig that represents Seth, and with safety assured, Ra can pause for a moment. He rests in the Hall, filling his form with new energy. It is a vital stage in his journey towards rebirth. And all of this appeared on the walls of a burial chamber, in obscure, jumbled glyphs. Visually and magically, the Judgment Hall of Osiris is the central component of the entire Book of Gates. The Judgment Hall comes after Hour 5. We are almost halfway through the Book of Gates as a whole, but it is time to pause. Let's take a break while Ra enjoys his rest. The first half of the Book of Gates focuses on some key concepts. Organization, or order, is a big part of the tale. The gods organize the offerings and the punishments. They divide humanity into its various groups. They establish the places, 
where different souls and gods will live. We also have a big focus on time. The concept of time and its renewal plays a prominent role in the underworld. The sun god Ra and other deities are responsible for this phenomenon. So the natural world, with its own sense of time and movement, is established here in the Duat. Those are two of the principal themes. Probably the most important one, though, is the relationship between the living world and the dead. Many of the souls who appear in the Book of Gates are there based on one of two criteria. The do-gooders, the people who lived proper lives on earth, receive their rewards in the Duat. The wrongdoers, those who did not live a good life, they receive their punishments. The Book of Gates places a lot of focus on the behaviour you are supposed to undertake in life. Piety, making offerings to the gods and the deceased. That is a good thing to do in the ancient Egyptian worldview. Doing that properly, when you are supposed to, and living according to the rules or the order of the natural world, that behaviour in life will earn you rewards in death. Failure to do that, failure to uphold the proper relationships and your place within the order, that will bring punishment. So from a modern point of view, we might say the Book of Gates has a strong moral component. The ancient Egyptians might not have described it that way, they would have simply considered it behaving in the way that was expected. You do what you are supposed to do because that is the way things are. The gods have created this world and they have established its rules. Those who obey will receive the blessings of the gods. Those who do not, those who rebel, they will receive punishment. It's a strong message, and it's strongly worded throughout the text. Repeatedly, we see the good people, the blessed dead, or Ach spirits, receiving offerings and rewards from the various deities. Likewise, we also see the wrongdoers receiving their punishments. Gods taunt them, gods burn them, gods hurt them, gods mock them. And the greatest of enemies, Apep and Seth, they are either subdued or driven away entirely. So the sense of righteousness is strong. There is an overwhelming focus on what you should do in life and how that will be received in death. If we take anything away from the Book of Gates, that should be the key focus. The other aspects, organisation, time and death itself, those are clearly important themes. But probably the most important one the one that appears in every single hour and is repeated constantly, that is the focus on proper behaviour and the rewards you will receive. A classic religious and social message, one that, so far, has never gone out of style. Thank you for listening to this journey. Next time, The Book of Gates, Part 2. I'll see you soon.